Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. This will be the third in a series of interviews about the Huichel shamanic culture. My guest is Gail Heisen, who is the founder, producer, author of the Small, Medium, at Large podcast. And Gail has been a guest many times now on New Thinking Aloud. And I would encourage you, if you haven't watched her earlier videos in this series, go to our listings page. If you can't find the listings page yourself, I'm going to link to it right now and look under Gail Heisen. The guests are listed alphabetically, and you will see many interviews with Gail that are well worth watching and will make today's interview much more meaningful. Gail lives in Sebastopol, California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gail. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. I believe since the last time you were on New Thinking Aloud, we've also broadcast a segment with your wonderful husband, David. So I'm delighted uh, because today we're going to be talking about, amongst other things, your trip to the Weichel country with David. Thank you so much for having us, having me back. And also thank you so much for having David because it just brightened his whole day after doing that interview, and he's gotten so many wonderful responses. And I'm just so glad that uh, people got to enjoy the wonderful husband I'm married to. <laughs> so in our last two uh, Weechol episodes, this is our final one, number three, I spoke about my trips, my four trips going there with my dad and by myself and this section, we're doing the last two episodes because I've made six treks to the mountains. And in this fifth one, I will just briefly tell you, I received a phone call from my dear friend Julio, who said, come now, which is what I thought he said, but I somehow misunderstood, but found out later, come down now to the mountains, I'll be here, and we'll be here doing some ceremony. Uh, you'll meet my wife. We'll all get together. La, la, la. And so I was also contacted at the same time by an American man in New York who is a yarn painter. And he had received a Fulbright Award and a Fulbright Fellowship. And he was able to go and live and study with the Weechol Indians. And he was my first contact with someone who's the same type of artist, like the only people I've known that do Weechol art, which is pressing strings of yarn into beeswax on a piece of plywood and making magnificent paintings. He's the only American I know who does that. And his paintings were all of um, places in New York, bridges, uh, you know, police checking on things, you know, all scenes of the different places he traveled. But after he went to the Weechol country and he told me he would be down there, we decided that we would meet. And I thought that I would be traveling with him because I knew it was kind of not so safe to be alone as a woman again going down there. 
and I wasn't with Miguel anymore. So I thought, okay, I'll go and meet with uh, Robert uh, Foreman, this amazing artist. So I went down there and we met at uh, Las La- no, at uh, Nueva Colonia, the last Pueblo before you get to the sacred ceremonial grounds of Las Latas. And he was this very nice man. And all of a sudden he said, I know I plan to travel around the Weecholes with you, but I just got a special invitation to go to a different place in the mountains with them, and I'm going to go. So I'm happy to have met you, but I'm going on my way. So that was our first time that we met. I ended up being part of one of his magnificent Weechol paintings, so I'm really thrilled and got to see it hanging in a gallery in New York. I can show you a picture of it uh, later. And... uh I didn't know what to do because now all of a sudden I was alone in the mountains and I didn't know where I was going to stay and I thought I was supposed to be with Julio. So it turns out Julio was actually in the United States when he called me and not in Mexico. (laughs) And I misunderstood in our communication. And so I knocked on his wife's door to see if I could stay with her, figuring that her husband stays at my house. But since she had met me and didn't know who I really was exactly, She wasn't letting me in until some communication came to her later and she found out I was the Gail that Julio stayed with. And after that, her door was open, the food was served, I was fed and I was taken care of. And I didn't stay too long because of this unusual trip. And it was just when David and I had just been uh, dating and going out with each other and we'd spent every weekend together. And this was the first time since we reunited that he had no way to talk to me. And there were no cell phones back then going into the mountains. This was, you know, 1990, 1998, 1997, something like that. It must have been, no, let's see. No, it must have been 1995 or six. Anyhow, so it was the first time he realized he couldn't contact me. And I think that might be why these things in his mind changed about when we were going to see each other. So I flew back in a shorter time than I expected because Julio wasn't there. And I met some amazing women, Patricia Diaz, who spent her life doing philanthropic work for the Weecholes. Her father had brought the first newspaper, no, first radio station to Mexico. So she was very wealthy and he had always done philanthropic work with the Weecholes. So she took over. And so I met her and we became friends and it was wonderful to see she she goes around and speaks in conferences all over the world about the DDT and the sprays that are used and the Weecholes are working in the fields farming tobacco and vegetables and things for um for for sale for big companies and yet they're not protected and they're sprayed with horrible chemicals so she's one who's done a lot of work to help protect these people so I met interesting people but it was a short visit. And when I got back to to the airport in San Francisco, David picked me up. And he was so happy to see me. And um, it was the first time we'd been away from each other since we'd gotten together. And we went out to get groceries because when I come back from the Weechol country, I'm always craving certain food because I don't eat like lettuce there or certain fresh vegetables because it's not safe. And we're stocking up and we're pushing the cart through the Safeway parking lot somewhere near Redwood City. And all of a sudden he turns to me and he says, under the full moon gale, he says something romantic about sharing our life together and will you marry me? So I'm in sort of shock. (laughs) 
that this man is asking me to marry him and I don't really answer. I don't know what to say. But there was a woman pushing a cart like 10 feet behind who heard the proposal. And in the night, she yells out, say yes, say yes. <laughs> and I'm not ready to say yes because I don't know. I'm just sort of taken by surprise here. Well, that night, I end up in excruciating pain of the likes of, you know, childbirth levels or something or kidney stones. And I don't know what's wrong with me, but I've just returned from the mountains. I don't know if I've contracted some strange disease because I've been eating and, you know, with people at a 10,000 feet elevation. Maybe I've, I don't know. So after nine hours where I could hardly even breathe anymore because we Schneiders like to suffer. We don't uh, take any relief. We just suffer through the pain. David takes me to the emergency room. And on the way to the emergency room, I say to him, whatever they do, because I'm getting really spaced out now from so many hours of pain, I say, whatever they do, do not let them give me any surgery. I will not accept any surgery. So they take me into the hospital. I tell them how I've been in the mountains, and they say I have a very high white blood cell count, so I could have tremendous infections from coming from there, and that it turned out I have a gallstone that's stuck in the little tube or something that I'm, tr that I'm not able to pass. And they say, I need to have surgery, get the gallbladder taken out immediately. And I will be relieved of all of the pain after that. You mean the gallstone, I guess. No, they want to take out the gallbladder, oh. the, the whole gallbladder. Oh so I said, I had told David to protect me if that had happened, because I somehow intuitively knew they were going to say surgery. And I said, no, no. And then they said, well, let us give you Demerol to take away the pain. But being a Schneider, I said, well, I'll have to think about that for a little while. <laughs> so after more excruciating pain and them wanting to throw me off the, the, the bed and out of the hospital for not accepting the surgery or the painkiller, they said, what do you want to do for you? <laughs> so I said, well, give me the painkiller. They give me the painkiller, and I think it relaxed my body enough that I might have just passed the stone. I don't know what happened, but David took me home, and I was all la-la from the Demerol, and I don't take those kind of drugs, so they're really strong when I, I have any. Demerol, as and I was, recall, is like a synthetic heroin. Oh, well, it was very... Whatever it was, it stopped all the pain, and it was a fantastic experience. I woke up in the morning, and I said... David, did you ask me to marry you last night? He said, yes. And then I said, what did I say? <laughs> and so to this day, we're never sure if I said yes or not or whatever. But we ended up having two weddings after that. The one where Timothy Leary was supposed to marry us. And we had an outdoor hippie wedding because we had met in the 60s. So we decided that was the theme for our wedding. And we got married in a circle of flowers with flowers on my head and everyone was wearing tie dye. And uh, it was 1995. And um, unfortunately, Timothy contracted hepatitis. It was like about a year before he passed away. And so he wasn't able to come up and marry us at the last minute. But it was still a lovely, beautiful event. And I feel that something happened that because I went to the Weecholes and he couldn't get hold of me, that something there was what triggered him to decide, I think I need to marry her so I can know where she is. <laughs> I'm not sure, but it was a very lovely and unusual wedding proposal, <laughs> a marriage proposal. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to take him down to the Weechol country to have the experience like I had with my dad. And 
David is the only other person I ever went there with besides my father. For people who haven't watched the earlier discussion in which you took your father to the Weechel country, I'm going to link right now for those people who can get the link in the upper right-hand corner of, of their screen because it's well worth watching and and. Today's interview will make more sense to people if they uh, watch that one also. Yes, part one and part two. Well, getting, you know, a little story of the life of, of the Weecho visits. So, and actually, I'm so grateful for us doing this because now I'm having recorded story of all these things that have happened over the years. And we're talking, this started 33 years ago. And so this is a, you know, to remember all these things is a, is a great uh, gift because of the photos I have. I can remember a lot of the stories. So David said he'd be happy to go with me to the Weechol country. And we did the trek where, you, you know, you, we flew in and you go to Zacatecas and you get down to um, uh, Hueokia, the last big town. And then you go to the Tensompa, the little Pueblo, and that's where you get the dollar bus and we go up in a, I think we took a taxi this time. We did the dollar bus and then we got a taxi to take us up into the mountain. And some of the stories that I'm telling him, he's figuring, I'm telling him about where we're going and he's figuring on these different things. Oh, Gail will be comfortable there. She knows what she's doing. And he finds out that's not really true. <laughs> I don't want to know what I'm doing when we get up there or where we are or where we're going. <laughs> and the first experience we have on our way to get to, we are heading for the 10-year anniversary, my 10-year anniversary of the peyote ceremony. And I'm not sure how David's going to be received because I'm bringing a black man to a village that when I came years ago, children hadn't seen blonde hair and blue eyes. So I wasn't sure how the black man with the Rastafarian hair was going to go over or what, what the people were going to, how they were going to react. And I brought him there <laughs> the first night before we got down to the sacred ceremonial grounds. We were staying in the last little Pueblo. And the rules are, you know, there are no bathrooms. There are no running water. But, you know, if you have to pee, you can pee wherever you want. That's no issue. But if you're not going to pee and you got to go... uh uh go 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 have a, a bowel movement you have to go 15 minutes they say is the rule that you walk from wherever the town is to 15 minutes and then you dig your hole or your rocks or whatever you're going to do to dispose of your waste well when we started walking the, the sun hadn't set really exactly yet it was just like dusk and by the time we finished walking the 15 minutes it was pitch black dark and when I say darkness, we don't know this kind of darkness here because you have to be in, there's no light there at all. You're in pitch black and I could not see. I go to the bathroom and I said, I say to David, okay, let's head back. And I look around and I realize I don't know where going back is. I don't know where the, the, the little houses we're supposed to go to. I'm just in a forest in the middle of nowhere, panicking, just having a hysterical panic attack, hoping that David has eyesight enough to see, which I don't in the darkness, where we need to go. And so the two of us stumbled around in the darkness in the forest, in the mountaintop, till we somehow found <laughs> our place back there. And that's when he realized that, no, I couldn't really show him anywhere around in the mountains. 
he was really under everyone else's protection, not mine. <laughs> so we had a good laugh after that. And uh, we headed down to Las Latas. And before we went down, we always sit at this, like a little cliff. And it's the only spot where you can see all of Las Latas. And it's all the different, te- it's the huge Kali way we spoke about. And all the little temples are around. And each one is designated for different ceremony. And then there's all the people's little adobe huts. Well, from the 10 years that I had not been there, the circle of the Las Latas Center had grown huge around it. There were so many more little buildings and so many more houses, and so much has changed there. I was just blown away. And I want to just for one minute before I tell you more about his, the people that we met when we went on that trip, is that they just recently had the peyote ceremony. And because of having my friend Julio here, I was able to receive film footage, which I cannot share with you because it's not permitted by the Weechol people. But I got to watch the peyote ceremony happening while it was happening. And it was during the Queen's Jubilee. So I thought, since no one ever says when the peyote ceremony is going to be, it's a last minute thing. They have to have a deer has to be caught. There's certain things that if those things aren't in line, there's no ceremony. And one of the peyoteros was here at my house when he got a call, because now it's cellular and you didn't have that in the old days. He gets a call, the peyote ceremonies this weekend, get on a plane, you have to be back here immediately. So my Julio's son-in-law had to rush out of here. That's why we knew all of a sudden the peyote ceremony is happening. Otherwise, how would you be in Sebastopol and know this is going on in the mountains? So uh, the ceremonies, the two that I went to, there would be like 100 people to 200 people over the five-day period. Now, Julio tells me, a 1,000 people are there. And that all of the communities come there for the ceremony, all the other Weechol, and that it is expanded and it's considered the most respected and traditional of the peyote ceremonies that are held is this particular one in Las Latas. For some background, the the Weechols live in uh, a number of communities. You refer to them as pueblos. And I guess maybe, what, a half a dozen or a dozen, so that their total population, I'm assuming, maybe you can correct me, might be maybe 5,000 individuals? No. The last time I thought, what I had quoted, I said, it's over 10,000. And somebody texted me back and said, it's actually more than that. So I don't know the real actual number, but I do know that 10,000 was the lower end. And the Pueblos are actually the Mexican kind of places that's before you get into the mountain. I don't know what they call the little spots where, you know, that like when you live in the mountains and you're a Weechol, you're not actually living in any little town or Pueblo. You're living in your own land that the government lets you claim as a Weechol. All you have to do is put up your fences and your animals and your house and it's yours. So that's spread out all around the mountain and all the way down to um, like the Puerto Vallarta area because there are weechols that live near uh, the, you know, in the lower part of the mountain, not high up like these weechols. And they have different uh, communities. There's the 
Santa Catarina, that's the one that we're talking about. And then there's the San Andreas, that's the one that's closer to, to peak. And then, they, and they, that's like closer to where the tobacco fields are. And, um, oh, the other two, oh, San Andreas, oh, San Sebastian is another one. And I forget the last one. So that would be like the community and they have different colors. Like one group is red and green and the other group is blue and green. So each community has two colors that signify. And when they're wearing their peyoteros hat, you see the different colors and then you know, oh, that person is from this community or that person's from that community. So that's how the, and they're spread out and, um, I don't know in the lower, you know, I don't know how many are in the other communities, but the Santa Catarina area where we were, you know, I met a hundred different people there, but now they're getting, and I asked, I said, is that all we chole that are coming? And he said, yes, it's not like all people from, you know, tourists are coming up there. It wasn't, it's not a group of large group of, uh, you know, white people. It's, it's their communities gathering together. So when David and I were headed to that, Julio was in charge. He was one of the head peyoteros. So that was a very lucky break for us, which was why it was important to go then, because then we were given like seats in the shade. We could sit very close to things. We were, we were taken care of because we were his guest. And he couldn't spend any time with us because he's too busy doing the ceremony. We basically saw him like when he was about to, you know, say hello and goodbye or needed a shower. I mean, that's the only times we saw him. But he arranged and he sort of like rented one of the Peyoteros' adobe house for us. So we got to sleep in one of the other Weechol's homes and we got to be five minute walk to the Las Latas, you know, to the sacred part and be part of the ceremony. Well, before the ceremonies to begin and they're just, you know, starting to get ready and things are happening, but it's a day or two before the actual event, David comes in, you know, we're, we're coming to meet everyone. And we don't know how they're going to react, as I said earlier, but I was so, my heart was so filled when we get into the center of the sacred grounds and out of nowhere comes this little shaman who I had known from my first peyote ceremony, the one who gave me the approval that it was okay that I was there and participating with the ceremony, Chipito. And he's a little tiny man, almost as short as I am, so maybe he's five foot two. And he's known for making something called pulque, or pul pulka, pulque. And it's, I think it's, it's sort of like a tequila type of a drink, and it's made from the maguey plant, which I'll show you some photos of later, that um, the maguey plant gets hollowed out by this man, and he has a like a whole, it's not an orchard, I don't know what it is when you have cactuses, but a whole field of these cactuses, and he hollows out the middle, and then this liquid comes up from the plant, and that's the liquid then he ferments. And he ferments it, and... When I was given it back in one of the other shows, we talked about it. I, I thought it was something to cleanse your stomach, but I ended up laughing my head off because it really has an al it's an alcoholic drink. So after I had done that laughing on my last trip, they always said, Gail can no longer have any more <laughs> pool cake because she laughs too much. And uh, when he came into the center and saw me, I thought, oh, he would just greet me 
when you see someone, you say kiaku, and that's the welcome greeting. And uh, he sees David, and he went rushing over. I'd never seen a weechel do this. This shaman rushed over and just embraced David with the tightest embrace you could imagine. And just, it was like he was looking at his old friend who had just returned. I, I, I don't know, because my Spanish isn't that fluent, what was going on exactly, except that I saw a tremendous amount of love from this man for my husband, David, and that it was the most beautiful, special moment. The other people also, I, I, I found out later, he was wearing his clothing from Africa, which were these beautiful blue, long, like gown-like things with blue pants. And in Santa Catarina, blue is the color. And so when he came out in that color and in those clothes, everyone like, wow, you know, we want this. <laughs> and uh he was just taken in and accepted immediately. And I, I'm just saying that doesn't happen like that. It was it was really really a, a lovely moment, and so David decided that, like I've told you before in our earlier shows, I only take enough peyote that I have like a little bit of a high, because I'm afraid how high I might get. What I don't know what place I'd go to and who would I communicate with, even though it would probably be spirits. So David, of course, doesn't feel that way. So he ate as much as he wanted and he was dancing and singing and we, you know, we were having a great time and he was tripping. And then we went back to our little adobe house, which I'll show you photos of also. And I didn't want to shut the door that night because that's your only way of getting, there was no window and I wanted some air in the little house. And when we got brought to the house prior to the uh, tripping part, uh, so I, I'm regressing just a tiny bit a day or two before, and I'll then come back to our tripping experience. We're in someone else's little home, so all their things are there, but they've given us their little bed. And I've never slept on a bed there. I've always slept on the dirt ground. So this is the first time I'm sleeping on an actual bed. It doesn't have a mattress, but it's still up off the ground. And we go to lay down in the bed the first night, and I keep going, Dave, what is that smell? What is that smell? And you got to remember, you know, we don't have big lights on or anything. It's candles or whatever. And we lay in the bed, and we look up, and there's a hacksaw hanging over our head. And we're looking at the hacksaw, <laughs> and we're starting to have some kind of, like, funny little movie-type memories, you know? The scenes we've seen in movies, right? And then the next thing we know, we see this side of a deer, like all the rib cage area, hanging next to the hacksaw with blood, you know, kind of dried, but a little bit still kind of dripping down. And it's right over our, our pillow, you know, our heads where we're sleeping. So I turn to him and I say, David, I don't know what to do, but I can't sleep in this room with this, you know, I opened the door for the smell. I, we couldn't figure it out till we found the, you know, the bones and the, meat of the deer and I know you know there's peyote on the side in a pot and there's all these things and I know that I don't want to touch anything because it's their home but I don't want to sleep in there now either with the dead animal thing <laughs> so fortunately out of nowhere comes Julio late at night because I had set up a shower there I knew from all my other visits you cannot bathe with any hot water 
So I put one of those camp showers from a tree that the sun heats it up. And then at the end of the day, you got a nice five second shower and it feels great. Quite a few people came over to use it. So Julio comes to use the shower and I hear something and I go out there and I say, oh, Julio, I'm so glad it's you. And I explained to him how, you know, how I live in Sebastopol. I just, you know, I'm just not up to living with a dead animal over my head or the parts of it. And he said, oh, no, no problem. I'll take the, I'll take the deer away, which he did. And on our final night there, after, you know, we'd spent this whole time having this amazing trip, when the man came back to get his place back and I gave him gifts for his wife and family and I, I put a lot of glow-in-the-dark stickers in their place, which nobody had seen, and they just absolutely loved it because you shut the door, doesn't have to be night, it's pitch black, and everything would be glowing with stars and moons and all these things that I could find places to put up. Well, he comes in and he's very happy and he's nice, his wife's, and we're you know, getting ready to go, and he says, so uh, what happened to my deer? My deer is missing. <laughs> And I say, oh, 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 don't worry, don't worry. We didn't uh, eat the deer. We didn't take the deer. I said, Julio has it. He'll bring it back to you. <laughs> so it was a very sweet kind of memory story. Well, back to the peyote and David tripping. We have that door open because I just feel like I have to have it open. And it, I don't know if it may not be safe or whatever, but I'm having that door open. I need the fresh air. And all of a sudden, David has this experience that later we described to him is called meeting your totem. And in case any of the listeners don't know what a totem is, it's could be a symbol or an animal or something that is there to protect or connect with you. And it's part of your, it's just part of you, your totem. Like, like for me, it's, it's, it's eagles or everyone has different like totems. Well, David's not into this kind of stuff particularly or has ever thought about a totem. But all of a sudden, there is a wolf outside the door howling away. And David's hair is standing up on end. And he's sure that this wolf has come there for him. And he said he was so glad that he was on the inside of the bed and I was on the outside that the wolf would get me first. <laughs> <laughs> and he's all having this whole experience with this wolf and the next morning we share the experience with Julio and Julio says there are no wolves here you have met your totem this is a sacred special grounds and this is where things like this happen where you connect with the spirit of the animal that's your totem and it was so real and you know there's no way David will tell you he's sure there was a wolf outside that door so I find that a very um, important story about the place where we were, the, the intense energies of the things that can happen there. And an MIT Yale man can have his totem come during the night <laughs> and not have a particular scientific reason for this. <laughs> so it was a very... Um, it was a very wonderful thing to be able to share such a place and experience and for David to see how my interaction and relationship is with these people and for him to meet people I had seen 10 years earlier that were so happy to see me again and um, women who just, you know, took, took their necklaces off to give me when we were there. It was a very loving thing and 
I wanted to kind of express about um, how hard it is in the life there that you're, you know, these women are working so hard and we're trying to help them, David and I, and they're grinding the corn for the masa to make the tortillas. And even though David has a very strong upper body, he's trying to grind that corn and he can't get it to grind. You know, after you do five or six, five minutes of it, you can't do anymore. And these women are doing this for hours and hours. But, you know, David tried and I tried, you know, we tried to participate in whatever, you know, we could in whichever ways we could help them. And um, I, I really feel he was very, very, very well received there. I um I think it's also part because he he he'll go with the flow. He doesn't he doesn't matter if there's no water. He wasn't upset that there were no ba- you know none of the inconveniences bothered him in any way. He was able to flow with it all. As you were undoubtedly. Yes, I learned that my first trip about flowing. <laughs> in the, my first trip I kept saying things that you don't need to say anymore like how come they're not here yet? I thought we were meeting them at 5. I thought that was yesterday, you know. <laughs> so after that, I learned always to be in the flow. But in my first trip, I was more like, you know, coming from the United States with my things about, oh, wait, it says on time or this or that. And you have to let go of all that when you're there. Things don't go that way. Um, anyhow, so um, what I wanted to share here that's so important to me is that this has not been a Gail goes to visit, has an experience, comes back, and that's it. This has been a long, deep, over 33-year relationship with these people. And it's been in the recent where these different traumas have happened, where I feel I've, 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 I've played a very small part in being able to give back to them in small ways, but in whichever ways that I can. And so, you know, I, I'm sharing happy stories, but now I'd like to share some stories that aren't so happy, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So our friend Julio is more than just a friend. He's part of our family. Um, he was here for me when my dad passed away, and he had a love for my dad that was just, you know, very, very sweet. His brother, Cirillo had been here and my father taught him everything about repairing and building things. He got to learn plumbing. He got to learn mild electrical things. He got to learn how to do sept, to build a septic tank. He never knew of a septic tank before. And he's so smart and he does such amazing work that everything my dad taught him My dad said I'd only have to tell him once and he would learn. And that was with no English and no Spanish. It was all by showing. And Julio has been home now for many years and he has not left his community because he has been able to take all the skills he learned and teach other Weecholes the skills that they, that he learned in building and, you know, like there, there are buildings there where the the walls are going this way because nobody measures. Cirillo, um, and these are their Spanish names, not their Weechol names. And Cirillo has done so much for his community. His, he is, his wife is the first 
Weechul doctor of all the Weechuls trained in Western medicine. And this is a very important thing. And because he was here and had a green card and was able to work for many years here, and he said to me, Gail, I want to stay with you for, for a few years before I go home because my daughter has now decided she wants to be a doctor. Cirillo's wife had been sponsored by that woman I told you about, Patricia Diaz, earlier, and she paid for her whole college education and living quarters and everything so she could become a doctor. Cirillo's daughter decided she wants to follow in the mother's footsteps, but he had to pay for her whole education. So he paid for it by living here and working in the fields to be able to pay for her to go to school. And as soon as she graduated, the sad part was she he didn't get to go to the graduation. Both him, both the parents were working, but their daughter is now the second full-fledged Western medically trained doctor to be able to help hundreds and hundreds of people in a little building he built from them for them with the skills he learned from my father. So there's like a clinic in the mountains now. These are very good things in helping people in a positive way in other cultures. Because he worked here, he learned all about farming, tractor use, planting fruit trees, the proper way to grow and trim and prune. He had not known any of these skills prior to this. And so now they're able to plant fruit trees and things in the way, in, in a fashion of knowledge of how to do all these things. So what my dad did in teaching Cirillo all these things is now being taught to young people like Julio's son. So while Julio visits us for a little period of time, his son is down there doing cement work and building walls with Cirillo that he is being taught all these amazing skills that he will have. So being able to share all this is, a, you know, the positive part of my story. Mm -hmm. The sad part of my story comes, I think it's close to two years ago, you know, more or less, something like that, about two years. Yeah. Julio's wife is in the mountains taking care of everything. His brother is a Weechol musician, and he is in the town Zacatecas, I mentioned, when he completes a wonderful performance in front of a large group of people in a some sort of a stage and some sort of a concert event, and they're all outside waiting to, you know, get their ways to get back home to the mountains, and a drug cartel guy which everyone hears about the drug cartels in Mexico, but I feel personally watching it affect the lives of these people made it very real for me to see. This crazy lunatic drove on the motorcycle with, I don't know, AK-47, something that sprays automatically tons of bullets, and he just sprayed into the crowd of uh, concert goers as he drove by. Two Weechols were hit, as well as Julio's brother, his younger brother. Cirillo was also a brother. Right. Cirillo, it goes Julio's the oldest, then Cirillo, and there's another brother, and then this brother, the youngest. Okay. And he, um, because of cell phones, Julio just happened to call and speak to him on the phone 
I think it was from the hospital that he had just been entered in the hospital and he died like two hours later. And this was very devastating for Julio and for his wife and children that this man just left behind. He was a young guy in his late 40s. He had also been raised by Julio's wife, Julia, and she had felt like he was a son to her, even though he was really her brother-in-law. I did a fundraising here asking people to donate money that could be sent down with Julio to help his the family that had lost him and help for the burial and getting him from the hospital back to the mountains because they want their, their, their family to be buried in the mountain, not in a cemetery in, you know, outside of some city in Mexico. So we were able to raise, you know, a few thousand dollars that helped and, um, his wife was preparing for the special ceremony, Julio's wife, who they have been together since their teenagers. His son is an adopted son from uh, the family and has been raised since he was born as the son of Julio and Julia. He was sleeping in bed with her it was the night before, the next morning they were to head to the mountain with all the things that they brought for the ceremony because you have a lot of get food and gifts and things you do. I've not been to a funeral there, so I don't know exactly how it goes, but you bring up a lot of things from the Pueblo up to the mountain. And she had just gathered everything to go up there. And Silao, his son, woke up that morning and she was dead in the bed. And... It was decided because of the death that it was she had died of a broken heart because she had been perfectly healthy up till then. She was only, I think, 60 maybe. And um, she was so distraught when the death had happened like that so violently and unexpectedly out of nowhere that she just could not handle the loss. And her son to wake up with your mom dead in the bed with you was very devastating for him because now he's lost his first mother who gave him up for adoption. He's lost his second mother. And so we're feeling all the pain here in our home that these people are experiencing because they're like family to us. And Julio is just devastated and we have to send him back instantly to be there for the wife he has all of a sudden lost his brother his wife all from this stupid drug cartel thing that's the most horrific things that are going on in mexico and it's very dangerous there right now for mexican people let alone other people coming in and we did more things and raised money again for his wife and to help them out and whatever we could do. And COVID hit and then we didn't see him for a long time. And then recently he was allowed to come back to, to visit. And when he came to visit, I said to him, Oh, on my birthday, May 15th, I'm having a, lovely group of Mongolians coming with a Mongolian shaman. 
and she's going to um, do ceremony here. And I want you to be part of the ceremony because I love sharing the different cultures that I'm bringing a Weechol Indian to a Mongolian shamanic ceremony. And Julio doesn't go to a regular medical doctor ever. He only goes to his shaman. His beliefs of the shaman as being the the most important person in his life is real. For, that's, that's who it is for him. And that's who cures him. And that's who aids him. Well, I said, you could come and watch the ceremony, whatever. And when we sit down to do the ceremony, which was all a surprise for me also, I had only met these Mongolians once and they brought, he came back 11 years later and brought me all these people and they all wanted to do ceremony under my tree. And when they found out it was also a birthday, they made it an extra special something or other ceremony, which was very lovely. And so we say to Julio, would you like to, you know, participate? And he does. And when the shaman, as we spoke about before, in Mongolian shamanism, um, not for my experience, but for the Mongolian shamans, they have a spirit enter their body when they start to do their healing work and their shamanic work. And this beautiful, gorgeous woman, like drop-dead model-type beauty, turns into a man, a really tough man. And she looks at the small group of people that we have, because it's only my family for the birthday, because we're being COVID careful. And she sees Julio, and she picks him out. Well, not she, but the man that she became says, I need to help this person. She points to him. We bring him up. And now you have to remember, when they go into their shamanic place, often the Mongolian shamans speak ancient Mongolian, not the Mongolian that's spoken today. So that has to get translated from ancient Mongolian into uh, current-day Mongolian. Then that translator turned it into English. That translator spoke to my daughter in English, and she in, in turn translated everything into Spanish for Julio. And that's when we found out that in the last year and a half since his wife had passed, he had not had a full night of sleep, and he was exhausted, and it was really really just wiping him out. We did not know this. He never said a word to us except when the shaman asked and said, you need me to, to help you. And he said, every night the spirit of my wife comes to me and she talks to me the entire evening and she will not leave. And this is a man who loved his wife dearly. So this is not a feeling of, oh, she's back again. Oh, you know, it's not like that. It's that it's gone on without stop for one and a half straight years. And he wants to sleep. So we, my daughter translate, my daughter Nancy tells back everything to her and it gets all translated in all the different languages. And she says, oh, and she takes a, she does two different ceremonies on him more than anyone else in our group. She does one with him under our few hundred year old redwood tree and another one when we do ceremony of fire and she takes the horns part of an antler the pointy part and she 
digs it into his back, not through the skin, but very deep into the back and goes down his spine. And she does other different ceremonial things to him. And the next morning, I, I, he comes to my house and I say, Julio, were you able to sleep? First night I have slept in one and a half years. And he said it was incredible. And he said he had bracelets he wanted to give the shamans to thank them. And then I checked with him the next day and the next day and the next day. And he had complete normal sleep again and was so grateful. And I, I what I'm trying to share here is that I've always felt like I'm like a connecting link or something for people and that I'm able to bring in two different shamanic cultures that are steep into sh shamanism. These aren't like, you know, shaman of the week people. You know what I mean? These are people who this has been their history. They're not hippies. They're not hippies. And they were able to heal and communicate and do the work together. And I think that that's a very beautiful thing. I also want to mention that while he was here and we finished all that, we lost another person. And what I want to say about this is this gentleman was a kid when I met him and his name was Maximino and he was the sweetest young boy. Well, maybe he, they always look so much younger to me than they are, but they're really older, but they look so young. Uh, maybe he was 19 or something when I met him and he was on the path to becoming a shaman. And we spoke earlier about in the Weechol tradition, it takes about 20 years to become a shaman. Well, Maximina grew up to become a shaman who our dear friend Julio was the, I don't know, client, or I don't know what the word is when you, you're, you're some, when someone's your shaman, but Maximino had grown to be a really fine shaman and did lots of stuff with Julio and his family. Well, when I heard he, he, he was in Las Latas and they don't know what happened. They just found him dead in the room. It wasn't like somebody heard him. I'm assuming heart attack or, you know, but we will never know because he's then buried. There's no, you know, no autopsies or anything going on. And he had a wife and four children, a young child and the son looks like about 16 or something. And it was just an, a freak death in a family. Well, I have never met his wife or children. I knew him as a young guy. I met him 33 years ago. But every time I came to the mountains, I saw Maximino. He was just such a wonderful guy, and he was my friend. And so I have different photos I took of him over the years. And I realized that I have been sending photos back to families that I have never met who may not have one photo of that person that they lost. And I almost feel emotional to tell you this because when I first went down there, people always said, you can't take photos. They don't allow you to take photos. So all the photos I have are all from the permission of the people saying, okay. And I have seen groups where you weren't allowed to and everyone turns their head and they will not let you take a picture of them. Well, because those people opened their heart and let me do that, I was able to make beautiful five by seven and eight by 10 color glossies 
to send back to all these families. And when they lost these people, when Silao lost his second mother, I have a photo of my arms around both his moms. And he wrote and asked me, could I please take the place of his third mother? And could I be that representative for him? And I was so deeply touched for someone to ask me to be their mother who's, you know, 18 years old. And um, to be able to hold possibly the only photos he'll have ever seen of the mother he never, ever met. And this, this is the... This is the work that makes me feel all this stuff is about. And excuse me, because I'm an emotional type, sorry. I'm coming to the end of this story, which is that when I heard Maximino's family was, you know, lost their, their, their father and husband, I sent down money to them right away through you know, because someone else is there and I can send it to this one and somehow it gets through the bank and then Julio gets it. Well, Julio's son got the money. And it turns out it was right at the peyote ceremony during the Queen's Jubilee. And he gave the money to the wife and children and sent me a photo, which I think I can share with you because it's not the movie of the peyote ceremony. But it's the photo of this family not knowing me at all, receiving this money because of the love we have for their father. And I have all the photos now of him that we're putting into making copies, five of each, so that every one of his family will have a photo of him from when he was young till when he became a man. And... I, I I take out the albums and Julio looks through and finds each picture and then we put it together and we're able to send it back to the family. And I heard that it brought tears to the heart of that family and they were crying at the peyote ceremony when they received that gift of money to help them for food. And my point here is that I didn't go there to just have an experience and find out about the Weecholes. No, I went there and became part of families there and continue to do things that reach and touch from the heart. And in fact, I want to just push this up to show everyone, if you can see here or here, Julio's son sent this to me and it was his mother's necklace and it has her name, Julio Carillo Del, written in embroidered, I mean, in beads across the necklace. And I, I'm very, very touched by the connection from heart to heart that I have with these Weecho people. I feel they've done so much to help me from cancer. From both times I left their place, I got pregnant instantly when I was told I could never have any more children to my dad's memories of it changing his, opening up his life to, to, to happiness and joy when he was in depression by being wanting to rush and help them with as many things and ways that he could. And for the fact that my children, my daughter just had her birthday and she was given a Weechole name. And my son was given a Weechole name when he was born, when he was like four or five months old. And so I, I, I really feel intertwined in a very, very deep way.
Well, it's certainly you know, the very best way, I should think, to approach uh, an exotic culture like that. It's like I say, I just go there and be me, and then all these funny things happen. <laughs> well, <I'm> God, sorry <laughs> for my... <laughs> what a joy to, to share your adventures over many decades. You are truly an inspiration to me and to many, many of our viewers. And uh, they often comment, in fact, about your infectious laughter. You <laughs> have, have a great ability to find joy in, in situations that other people might find just sort of dull or depressing. I feel like laughing is a healing, it's a healing emotion or it's a healing thing. And um, some people, it's very hard for them to get in touch with that part inside, to just let that laughter go. And that's, in fact, the one place that David and I have always, you know, we've cleared restaurants or whatever with the amount of laughter that comes out of us is so loud. <laughs> some people get offended by it, but it's uncontrollable. We can't help it. <laughs> Well, I think it's one of your finest qualities. And although we've now completed all the interviews that we had planned to do, three on the Weichel shamanism, three on the Mongolian shamanism, we've done a, an interview about your early life history, which is amazing. We've done an interview about uh, remembering our mutual friend, Jean Millay, with whom you were very close. Uh, there might be one or two more in there, but even though we've completed all of those interviews, I want you to know that you are very welcome to come back on New Thinking Aloud again and again. I know you have so much to offer, and I, I want to keep sharing your pearls of wit and wisdom and humor and something else. I'll call it the X factor with <laughs> viewers. So once again, Gail, thank you so much for being with me. Well, I'd love to. I don't usually put a plug in for myself because I don't really have anything to sell, but I do want to put a plug in for my podcast because I'm having my first uh, guest that's a celebrity. And it's a hysterical interview with Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong. So if anyone that is interested in that kind of an unusual show, uh, that'll be airing uh, at the end of July on a small, medium, at large podcast. <laughs> and, and we put your, the link to your podcast in the uh, description of this video. So okay. people can go there and uh, click directly uh, to your podcast. Uh, well, well, once again, Gail, thank you for being with me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.